Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined first and foremost on the programme by Jim Carrick-Birdwell. Jim is the CEO of Future Talent Group, a purpose-driven media and learning business that has evolved out of ChangeBoard, the job board and global community of over 50,000 HR professionals that was started back in 2004. Uh, Jim, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us today. So, Good morning. Uh, pleased to be with you, Scott. Likewise, Jim. It's a real pleasure having you on the airwaves with us. Um, the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But rather than diving straight in with that, considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start there. Um, I'm sure you'll agree that it's posed one of the greatest challenges of our time for this current generation of business leaders. But how has it affected you and your operations? Well, it, 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 I don't think it, it could could have been described as convenient for anybody um, from a, from a, what's happened in the last six months. But for us, we were at the point of, of launching quite a major new initiative um, in April this year, which was Future Talent Learning, which was a, 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 a product, a learning business that we've been working on for a, the last couple of years. And um, essentially, uh, we deliver programs uh, to um, all sorts of individuals in generally large organizations. Uh, and part of the program of activity involves physical events. Now, fortunately, we were able to kind of flip because we designed a lot of virtual events. But uh, we had to delay the launch by a couple of months. Um, but you can imagine as as the pandemic was kind of rearing its head in the early part of March, uh, and it was looking increasingly unlikely that um, any form of gatherings was going to be possible. It, it was putting in jeopardy a project we, we'd uh, we'd worked on for quite some time. But you know, we, we were able to to, to to pivot to use the phrase um, and de- develop uh, programs of learning that are a hundred percent virtual. Um, one of the other impacts was. Um, we run an annual conference for about 700 HR leaders, so HR directors, heads of talent, heads of learning and development uh, across, you know, UK PLC, and they gather in London once a year with us. Um, the date of that was March the 19th. Um, and actually, uh, from memory, I think the, the lockdown happened a couple of days before that, but we took a what felt like a very brave decision, um, but the right decision uh, about 10 days before that um, to postpone the conference. Um, and we were, you know, it, we were slightly ahead of the curve in that sense, but we were very grateful that a lot of the uh, our partners and the, the indeed the delegates and attendees um, were hugely appreciative that, as they put it, we, we'd taken responsible action and hadn't sort of carried on and, and asked them to attend something where, all of the media was was looking uh, was saying explicitly this is looking increasingly um, li- like uh, you know um, something that w- you're not going to be able to safeguard the health and safety of people at mass gatherings. So, a couple of immediate things that impacted us during the uh, the, the early stages of the pandemic. And. Just reflecting on your experience of the last uh, few months, is there anything that you would say that you've learned in your leadership capacity as you've adapted to this new reality? 
Yeah, Scott. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a really good question. I think um, one of the things that, that's become incredibly apparent um, is that we have had to communicate differently with with one another. You know, we're a we're a we're a, a, a you know relatively small business, um, and we have a, a we've had a regular team meeting every Tuesday where lots of people gather in, in our kind of um, in our London office. Um, but actually, we have people all over the country that have dialed in, or we've been using Teams thankfully for the last twelve months, so we're getting used to that. But I think communication with everybody has been absolutely essential because um, the world of work is changing and has been changing at a rate of knots for quite some time. And you know, there's every sign before the pandemic that was only going to accelerate. Um, I think what the pandemic has done is made everything completely unprecedented. So you can't, as a leader, be sure-footed in the way that you would hope and say, well, look, this is something that I, I'm sure is the right course of action. And, and and I've felt personally that I've had to fall back, and, and, and so has quite a lot of leaders within our business, on the trust that we've built up over actually many years. Um, where and I guess an example of that is where we say, well, look, we don't have all the information. We're not sure this is absolutely the right thing to do or the right course of action, but we're going to share our working with you. We're going to treat you as grown-ups. And, and because you were doing that sharing, it gives you confidence that actually you, you know where it's coming from. Mm. And if we need to change as we go, then we will do that. We will respond. So an example of postponing the conference uh, back in March, a really good example of that. Uh, you know, being very, very honest with people um, and then being honest and open and transparent with uh, all the other stakeholders that would come to that event, I think stood us in good stead. And, and I guess my reflections on trust are that, um, you know, trust is built up of hundreds and hundreds of interactions that can be very, very small things where, you know, you've said something and, and, and actually you follow through with that, that builds trust, whether that's um, arranging to have a call with somebody, whether it's, you know, well, there's so many interactions and, and actually you build a body of that trust. And that allows you to then transact with people um, because the relationship has that trust. And I don't think, I don't think we've ever been as aware as we have done, and me personally as a leader, of how much we're trusting to one another um, to get on with things over the last six months. And I suppose that keeping those communication channels open and providing that clear sense of direction does provide some certainty amid the uncertainty in a way, doesn't it? And that's important to manage people's mental health during a time like this. That is something... hmm, hmm. Absolutely. Sorry, no, I, was, I, was, I was just about to say there, Jim, that um, the mental health and well-being of people is something that really has been thrust back into the limelight during this time by the pandemic, um, not just because of the uncertainty over people's jobs and people's health, but also the social isolation side of the lockdown period as well. Just how important is mental health in leadership in your view, both in terms of safeguarding that of those around you, but also your own as well at a time like this? No, absolutely, Scott. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's paramount. Um, we've, 
championed mental health as a as a as a major item of consideration for for leaders and all people in the workplace in particular over the last 10 years. Um, and it, it's been a consistent theme across our content channels and, and across our events. Um, and I guess specifically in, in the downturn, um, we've translated that uh, as, as a leadership team um, to saying to everybody in the business, look, you've got to look after yourself. You've got to prioritize um, your own mental health, your own well-being, your own health, and your families, that's immediate family, but also extended family, parents, and given them the freedom to always prioritize that over everything else. And actually allowing people the freedom to do that rather than just building up a pressure cooker that they know they've got to juggle their their work commitments, their home commitments. A lot of colleagues have had homeschooling commitments. Um, has 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 been extremely helpful, I think, for everybody. Um, but but also, I guess personally, uh, I'm very aware that um, as a leader, you know, we've got to take time out. It's been a really actually mentally and physically exhausting period the last six months. So I've encouraged everybody to take holidays um, so that they, they have downtime, they, they don't burn out. Now, whether that's a staycation or whether, as we've been able to do more recently, you can go away, I think it's incredibly important. And, and I've also aimed to lead from the front on that. I think if, if you're a leader, it's all very well saying to other people, have downtime, take holidays. But then if you don't do that yourself, it, it, it's mm. not really sending the right signals. And I'm not just doing that as a PR stunt. I think it's been incredibly helpful for me to put time in the diary and tell everybody, look, this is time when I'm, I'm not going to be tracking emails. I'm not going to be on calls. And we've always respected everybody's time out in that sense. It has to be incredibly important or urgent for, for any of us to contact colleagues when they have that uh, that holiday or off time. And that's just respecting essentially people's ability to recharge, have some downtime. Um, I think the other aspect of this is, um, uh, you know, to, to support mental health um, is to, I've mentioned very transparent communication um, but also really engaging with your staff, um, making sure that um, they know exactly what's going on. So engage, engage, engage. Um, and, and actually, that's, that's uh, when we're making decisions in the business, we're asking their opinion. We're finding out. We've done a lot more surveys about, uh, for example, returning to the office, how people feel about that. Um, and, you know, I did a podcast uh, in turn not that long ago um, uh, with uh, Matthew Taylor, who's um, chief exec of the RSA. And, and I've always found him an incredibly kind of wise and, and human figure um, on the subject of leadership. Um, and he was saying leaders ultimately still have the responsibility to make decisions, Um so engaging staff and, and asking their opinions, it's not the same as democratizing decisions. You're not abdicating responsibility. Um, but, but if you're honest, then even if people disagree or, or you know, are not quite sure, 
then they're okay with things. They can live with that. But if, if you leave them in the dark and they're not quite sure of the basis on which decisions are being made, then that, I think, adds quite a lot to people's stress. That's mm. certainly been one of the insights and learnings that I've taken from the last six months. Mm. And I can certainly understand where you're coming from, from that point of view, Jim, for sure, the importance of openness and transparency in that regard. Um, just stepping back ever so slightly there, of course, you mentioned the importance of encouraging people to sort of take a little bit of downtime for themselves when they need it. But just how easy in the hectic world of running a business do you find it, even in the everyday environment before this pandemic, to just sort of switch off when you need to? Yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think um, uh, if, you're, if you're running a business, then there's, there's a, there is always a sort of a sense of being always on. And I think um, one of the things that, that I've reflected on in the early stages of the lockdown, I was saying to, 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 to colleagues and friends, actually, a silver lining of this was that there was a, you know, um, not having to commute every day, not having to move around between lots of meetings, and and actually the sort of incessant social interactions that that you have, not just during your working life, but during your your social life as well. The lockdown, in a way, um, was a was a bit of a break from that. Um, but the flip side of that is the fact that. We're spending, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, uh, many hours of most days in front of a screen doing virtual meetings. Um, and that's pretty intense. Um, uh, and I think being conscious of that and being aware of that for me has meant that in the evenings, I, I do my utmost to, to actually not have my, my phone near me. So I'm not keeping an eye on emails um, as a discipline for several hours each evening. Um uh, I'm also making sure, I mean, I've, I've, I've got a dog. Um, I make sure that I, you know, take the dog for a walk first thing in the morning. You know, it's normally about 7, 7.30 every day um, before I start. And just creating um, manageable rituals, routines, and, and hardwiring them into every day um, has, has, has created a certain ability for that, that downtime um, non-screen time, not interacting, um, which I think is really important um, to create some sort of balance. Mm, I would certainly um, agree with that uh, for sure, Jim. Now, um, I am conscious of running out of time on the uh, the program this morning, but before we do just wrap things up um, on today's show, I would like to talk about the future, particularly the next 12 months, because we know that we're going to have to continue to adjust to the new normal in the way that we live and the way that we work. Um, but what is it that you're really hoping to achieve with Future Talent Group and Change Board over the course of this next year? And where do you see the businesses being in 12 months' time? Uh, well, thanks for asking that. Um, we, as I, as I mentioned, we've, we've relatively recently launched um, Future Talent Learning as a business. Um, and actually, most of the activities of our, our business have, have aligned uh, themselves, whether they're events or content, with our learning business. And, and essentially, I think um, it feels like it's in strong growth mode um, and will continue. And, and the reason for that is we're focusing um, with the virtual content and the virtual events and the virtual coaching that we provide um, on upskilling um, people's soft skills 
Um, it's funded in England through the apprenticeship levy. So um, uh, large employers, we've got all sorts of companies signed up like um, uh, Asda, Credit Suisse, Boeing, Costain. Um, and what they've recognized is that, um, and the pandemic, if you like, has, has accelerated this, is that there is a real need to focus on our um, interactive skills with other people. So, you know, in short, uh, we've got an acronym um, ACT, so which is Agile, Collaborative, Transformative, which uh, uh, a certain core skills, mindsets, behaviors that, that, that we've understood for many years are absolutely central for people to um, be developing for the changing world of work. If you like, the pandemic has crystallized and accelerated that. So, you know, agile, it's the ability to um, uh, get on with things even when you don't have all the information, but be open to learning, taking new information data on board and, and be comfortable changing as you go. Collaborative, being better at communicating in lots of different modes. Um, lots of the things that you've covered in terms of um, how to lead, how to lead through others. It's not your own activities and endeavors that are going to move the dial. It's can you motivate, engage, excite, look after other people so that they can be motivated in turn to be highly productive, highly energized in, in their working lives. Um, and transformative is essentially a mindset where you view everything, including the changes that are being forced on us by the pandemic, as much as possible as an opportunity rather than a threat. Um, and, and, and also being very mindful that for the vast majority of people, they're having to manage their business as usual, as well as all the new changes and innovations you know, that are, that are now part of everybody's working lives. So for us, we're absolutely kind of motivated and committed to, to um, future talent learning. Um, but it also feels incredibly purposeful work uh, in the context of, of this change. And so supporting people's changing working lives, um, that's a, a very motivating um, uh, strategy, if you like, for, for our business certainly seems like there's plenty to get your teeth into over the course of the year the next few months there Jim and I think um, it would be fantastic if at some point in the next year we could catch up and have you back on the program just to see how some of those plans are coming to fruition yeah that'd be that'd be my pleasure thanks very much Scott I appreciate your time on this I've really enjoyed having you join us on the program today Jim it's been a real pleasure for myself and a really enlightening experience for our listeners as well and most importantly do take care and do stay safe in the meantime with all still going on as well thank you so much you too take care Scott I was speaking on today's programme to Jim Carrick-Burtwell, CEO of Future Talent Group and Change Board. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket skipper Sir Andrew Strauss. During his professional career, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, he spent a period of time as director Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has also become a champion for mental health and charitable causes. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew and that is coming up next.
Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is 
the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah i, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things being with different people sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... Uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure, no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after, because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well in a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but i, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your 
time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually. The most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, 
impressive you might be as a person, they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soul in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on the sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that. 
uh, in a good way. You know, felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC and you wearing re- wearing red. So what w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.